You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Amanda Regan and Dr. Eric Gonzaga, co-creators of the NEH-funded digital history project, Mapping the Gay Guides. Dr. Regan teaches history at Clemson University, and Dr. Gonzaga teaches American Studies at California State University in Fullerton. Amanda, Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we get into some of the nitty gritty of how you actually have created this project and gotten all your data together and presented it online as vignettes and as an interactive map, one of the things we like to find out is your sort of origin story. It seems like from our earlier segments, you're both in a formal sense are historians and then have come from different directions of now working in the digital humanities space. But how did each of you actually come to be a historian or come to the digital humanities? When I was getting ready to go to college, I originally wanted to be a computer scientist. I had always been fascinated by computers and technology and learned to code a little bit in high school and got to college and sat down in my first U.S. history class. It was the survey. It was the big, you know, 100-person survey, U.S. history, 1877 to the present. And I just flat out fell in love. And I could take a bunch of really interesting history courses, or I could go sit in a math class and try to do calculus so that I could be a computer scientist. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to scrap that. I'm going to do history. And it just so happened that as I was finishing up and I was thinking about what was next, And I was like, well, am I going to go into the private sector and try to get a job? Or am I going to decide to make this a thing and go to graduate school? My university, Cal State University, San Marcos, they had a digital history master's degree, which was the first digital history master's degree at the time, west of the Mississippi. And I said, well, that's kind of perfect. That's the combination of the two things I love, technology and history. And so I uh, decided to go to graduate school there. I got my master's degree and worked with this wonderful professor, Jill Watts, who was sort of a pioneer of that program. And the goal was to go and get a PhD. And when I looked at places to go and do digital history at the time, the best place was George Mason University. So that's where I ended up. I got a digital history fellowship um, and ended up working as a graduate research assistant at the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media which is a research center housed out of George Mason University, named after one of the pioneers of digital history, Roy Rosenzweig. And so I worked there for five or six years developing software for historians. That's the home of Zotero, which is a research citation management software. It's the home of Omeka, which is a platform for museums, libraries, and archives to take digitized primary sources and put them online. And it's the home of Tropy, which is a research tool for managing your uh, research photos from the archives. And so I worked there on a number of different projects. And while I was there, I learned to code. And that's sort of how I came to this. And what about you, Eric? How did you end up where you are today? Becoming a historian. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Harvey Firestein just gave an interview recently and he says there was no word for describing gay kids or children when we were growing up. So we called kids like that artistic. I certainly was an artistic kid growing up. My parents probably knew I was gay, but I didn't know at the time. But I loved theater growing up. 
I'm not a good storyteller, but I loved hearing stories, loved watching movies. I loved going into theater when I was a kid. And my parents would take me to like theater when I was a kid. I can't tell if I like theater or if I like costume. I grew up in the Midwest. My dad was in the military, so I grew up all over the country. And we'd go to historic sites whenever we moved around. And I think I was just obsessed with people in costumes telling about the history of their town. And as a historian, we're interested in the why question, like why things happen. And historians always, for me, had the best answers to that. Mathematicians have mathematical answers, you know, scientists have scientific answers. But it was this kind of historical answers that I was really interested in growing up. And then I said I was this young gay kid not knowing who was gay. And by the time I realized I was gay, I felt very isolated in the Midwest. I literally thought I was the only gay person in my whole town and maybe my whole state of Indiana. And that really frustrated me, right? So I wanted to know, like, there had to be other people like me, right? So I got to college and I wanted to show the world there was gay history out there. And so I think my interest in history was really like trying to tell people that I wasn't lonely in the world. History was my way out of feeling isolated that I felt growing up. And so I think my work as a historian is trying to tell the history of stories of people who have been neglected and who have been told that their history and by extension their lives haven't mattered. And that's really brought me to really become a historian. I kind of go to law school. I think that's what a lot of people in history BA programs think they're going to do. But I did terrible on my LSATs. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm like, is history a real career? So I went to George Mason because one of my favorite books I ever read was by a professor named Suzanne Smith. She wrote this book called Dancing the Street, which is about how Motown music was a reflection of African-American society in Detroit at the time. And I was like, I'm a gay guy. I'm going to do a history of Philadelphia and disco music. And I'm going to work with her. And I ended up working with her and did a very different dissertation, but something similar to that. And that's how I became a historian. I haven't stopped being interested in the story of marginalized people and really queer people ever since. And that's my story. Obviously, for Amanda, she was knee-deep in development and digital projects, but was this your first sort of major digital project, Eric? Gosh, it's not my first major digital project. When I got to George Mason, I have to tell you, uh, I was in shock because they were like, well, now that you're in the PhD program, you're going to be required to take digital history classes. I was like, why? And I had no idea that George Mason has this incredible digital historical background, but I went there following a professor. So I'm like terrified, unlike Amanda, who's a digital history whiz. I am not that. I still am not that. But I got there and they're like, please make a project. And so I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? And so my first project I ever did was I decided to use this open source software called Omeka that was developed at George Mason by some of the people we've already talked about, Sharon Leon and whatnot. Omeka is this digital archiving software. I designed this website where I went to an archives in Indiana, which is now closed, sadly. But at this archives, I found a whole bunch of LGBT t-shirts t-shirts worn by gay members of the community in Indianapolis. And I thought I was going to find a whole bunch of activist t-shirts like support gay marriage. This was before the gay marriage decisions in 2015. But what I found was t-shirts about gay bowling leagues and lesbian TV parties, right? Celebrating when Ellen came out on her nightly sitcom, right? I thought it was really cool. And it's a different way of thinking about gay history. I couldn't find gay records of organizations, but I found t-shirts that told us a lot about gay life. And so I built this website called Wearing Gay History, which originally started with 300 t-shirts. And I was able to travel to like 21 archives, and now the site has 5,000 t-shirts on it. And that's actually where I started first working with Amanda on that project, because she helped me make this Omeka software actually look like a really functional website. And I used her digital expertise to make this project really what it is today. And so when she came up to me and she's like, do you want to do another digital project? I jumped at the chance. Is that project still available online, Wearing Gay History? It is. So you've got history and development. So you said you've got a funding for a little prototype first. Did you stick with the same platforms and design for the current version? 
Yeah, he actually is still the prototype. When I say prototype, right, it doesn't necessarily look like wireframes and sketches, but that very much is a prototype. We transcribe the data into a database, and then that database is uploaded to our programming language. And we use a visualization library for that programming language to build that visualization that you see on the site. The reason I describe that as a prototype is because it's a software that relies on a outside server to process the information. And that's not exactly sustainable, right? And one of the things we want to do is make sure that this project lives for a very long time. And so in the next phase of the project, we're going to take that bootstrapped visualization and port it to a technology called D3.js, which is a JavaScript visualization. And so it'll actually do all of the calculations and the mapping inside your browser rather than relying on a server in New York to do that. What's the language out of curiosity? What programming language is the basic stuff written in? Mostly R. So that's how we process the data and geocode it. And then Shiny is a library for R. And that allows us to create the reactive elements of the application. So the things that respond to user input. So when you change the slider or dropdowns, it then changes the map and the data set below it. Inside of Shiny, there's some JavaScript, uh, like that's what runs Leaflet, which is the mapping API that you see there. But the overall thing is Shiny. Your base maps, where are those coming from? Because I don't think your grad students sat around as cartographers redrawing the entire United States. No, they did not. So that map that you see is Leaflet, and the base map, I believe, are OpenStreetMap. So it's an open source available map that you can get on the internet. So this whole thing isn't actually an open street map API that you're using other tools on top of the open street map. You're just serving the base maps out of open street map. Exactly. Yeah. It is the library that makes the map run. Like that's what does all the clustering. And the base map is basically just an image that underlies that. The thing about open street map is that it's very much community driven. And open source projects have such a community behind them and they tend to be more agile and responsive and more open to change quickly. And so I think you can actually submit a change to the OpenStreetMap community and they'll adopt that change within the map. With that in mind, because it's come up, I know in the earlier segments that you have a bunch of grad students that are helping transcribe pages from the guides and so forth into the database and then truthing that data and adding more info. But aside from your grad students and the two of you, I'm guessing there are probably other people or organizations involved in this project besides NEH just writing you big fat checks. So who else has been working with you all on this? Actually, I'm not for sure if that's true. I think it's just us. The project is driven by myself and Eric and our grad students, but we've been fortunate to have a lot of institutional support. The initial version of the project was funded by Cal State Fullerton. They gave us a little bit of professional development money to get rolling. And then when I graduated from my PhD, I had what's called a postdoc, and that allowed me two years at Southern Methodist University's Center for Presidential History to work on with no teaching obligations, with no other commitments. And so I was able to dedicate all of my time to this project, which was incredibly generous of them. So that allowed me to really dig in and bootstrap the development of this. And then, of course, we have the NEH and Clemson that has been supporting the project a little bit. And I'll say as well, because we were able to build the first data set from 1965 to 1980, because Alexander Street, this, this database behind a paywall, had the Dameron guides all scanned, but they only scanned in 1980. So we're able to use those scans that were behind a paywall 
to build the data center. But we didn't have anything after 1980. So we built in the grant that we we're going to scan all these other guides and then post them online for free. Well, luckily, while we were waiting for the grant, the University of Washington reached out to us. They knew we were working on this. They were like, do you have any agreement? We're like, how are you going to scan the rest of the guides? We're like, we do have an agreement with a library. And they're like, we have this new funding. Would you like us to do the scanning for you? We're like, that would be wonderful. Even if we don't get the grant, at least we'll have the scans and maybe we can do it on our off time. Well, so they did almost all the scanning for us, and that's been great and wonderful collaboration. And now they have scans, we have scans, and based on the agreement with the One Archives, the largest LGBT archives um, probably in the country, they're going to now be able to post all of the Dameron Guide scans for free for users around the country. Unfortunately, everything before 1981 is behind a paywall, but everything after it, thanks to our collaboration with the University of Washington, is not going to be behind a paywall, which is great. And we should also mention, too, that Gina Gata of the Dameron Corporation has been kind enough to give us permission to republish these. And I wanted to ask, this started with the idea of putting this data from these printed guides online. So where did the pile come from, the pile of guides? Well, I had identified that there's hardly any library archives, even LGBT archives, that had a full collection of Dameron guides. Really, the only place that had them, I think, and even they don't have a full collection, I don't think, is the One Archives in Los Angeles. So we had an agreement with them that if we were to get the grant, we would take their full copy and then scan them carefully because they don't want to unbind them. And it's hard to scan things without breaking the bindings. They're very delicate. When I started the project 10 years ago, you could find old copies of the guides for 20, 30 bucks. Now some of these guides from the 60s and 70s are going for three or $4,000. <laughs> yeah, they're extremely rare collectible items now. So we knew there was a full collection there. And now the only real place that has a full collection, and even mine's not full, is Gina Gatta has given us, has donated a full run of the guides um, to our project, which is incredible. And we have them here at Cal State Fullerton. So in a sense then too, a sort of bonus on this project is that all this stuff got digitized. From a digital preservation standpoint, that's really cool. Those guides are so rich, right? They have advertisements, there's other information in there that we, we think other people will like to use um, as well. So right now, people can go to your website, mappingthegayguides.org, and there's everything from 1965 through 1980. But what's the time frame that you're going to bring us up to 2005? We're going to have the first set of data in the late summer, early fall. I don't want to commit too much to a timeline just yet because we're not quite finished. Later this year. Yeah, later this year. And then it will start to roll out fairly regularly after that. Probably every semester we'll have a new batch of data. And we think that all of the data all the way to 2005 should be done in the next two and a half years. That's when the NEH project ends. So hopefully by uh, 2024, all that data will be available to everyone. But at the same time, you're also sort of making the whole project sustainable. So it's going to be there available as a resource for as long as we all have electricity and internet. Which is a big if. It's a big if, Ellen. So... <laughs> Print out those maps while you can. Exactly. <laughs> well, it is such a cool resource. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today about it. It's been really enjoyable and enlightening. Thank you very much. Hey, it's been so fun. And if you would like more information about Eric and Amanda's project, Mapping the Gay Guides, you can visit the project online, mappingthegayguides.org. That's all one word, no spaces. Or you can follow them at Gay Guides on Twitter. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten. 
and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klopp. So you can find me just sitting at my crossroads.